Wells open, they're away in the Golden Slipper. There's a great start. And Mick Mitt Masque on the extreme outside is about the first out. Jack Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front. Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit to Jackler. This I podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. You only need to talk to country-based owners and trainers to realise that the Tab Highway concept has been a runaway winner for Racing New South Wales. The scheme met with some opposition when introduced in 2015, but it wasn't long before the Tab Highways captured the imagination of regional horsemen. Early days, trainers like Matt Dunn, Matt Dale, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the weekly highways, but now there seems to be a different winning trainer every week. For bush owners, the prize money has been a revelation, while punters love the highways as a betting medium. From a media viewpoint, the highways seem to throw up a good story most weeks. The Tab Highways are a key component of the new face of New South Wales racing. Very few race meetings go by in Sydney and Melbourne when the OTI racing and bloodstock colours don't go around at least once, sometimes half a dozen times. It's not uncommon to see the familiar navy blue and gold hoops with white sleeves being carried by two or three runners in one race. OTI Racing and Bloodstock was founded in 1999 by its long-time CEO, Terry Henderson, and former Test cricketer, AFL footballer and media presenter, Simon O'Donnell. In fact, the new company took its name from O'Donnell's previous bloodstock company, O'Donnell Thoroughbreds International. OTI experimented with a handful of bloodstock initiatives in the early days before settling on the business model that has become their trademark, the acquisition of tried horses from Ireland, England, Europe and New Zealand for syndication mainly in Australia. Some of the horses are raced overseas but are usually brought to Australia at age four. Terry Henderson has the backing of a dedicated full-time staff in Melbourne, he has a representative in Sydney and he utilises the services of overseas agents who are constantly on the lookout for the right kind of horses to join the OTI team. As this podcast is posted, OTI have 25 horses in training overseas and about 75 in Australia and New Zealand. It's a big concern. Co-founded and operated by a man who got his start with harness horses. Terry Henderson's passion for horses was ignited by a wonderful pacer of the 1950s and early 60s who raced at the elite level. His name was Dusty Miller, and young Terry became a fan in the most obscure way. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the podcast Terry Henderson. Great to catch up, Terry. Yeah, likewise, John. You're a native of Victoria's La Trobe Valley, but at age 10 you went to live with your grandmother at Fairfield in Melbourne. Now, your grandma ran a home for senior citizens where an auntie of Dusty Miller's owner was a tenant. Getting a bit distant, but I understand. 
<laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, his name was Skipper Taylor, and uh, he'd actually play a part in my life about 10 years later on when I started business. But, uh, yes, um, uh, Skipper Taylor owned Dusty Miller, trained by G.D. Wilson, and uh, for about five or six years from the age of 10, I was a huge fan of the horse and used to go to the showgrounds and watch him go around. So, uh, huge fan. He, he had a wonderful record, old Dusty Miller, and it could have been even better with an ounce of luck. He ran second in two Inter-Dominion Grand Finals. Yes, yeah, and uh, at those days I didn't really appreciate the significance of some of these bigger races that he was in, but he was always a very competitive horse. He was always up there, quite often not winning, but running against some of the greats of the time. Mm. It's hard for modern-day trotting enthusiasts to understand uh, the glory days of the old Melbourne showgrounds where the crowds were huge, betting was huge, and the atmosphere was indescribable. Well, you know, I can vividly remember being on the rails and as the horses came round, you know, to the start, they'd, head, they'd had their head over the fence and uh, people would be patting them uh, as they were getting ready to start their race. Mm. Uh, it was a tremendous tremendous atmosphere on that back straight uh, at the showgrounds and uh, of course later on uh, before we moved to Mooney Valley mm. I'd take, take my other grandmother uh, to the races and think that I was dining with the kings and queens of racing up mm. in the grandstand at the, at the showgrounds. Yeah. Great days. In the early 1980s you founded a syndication company called Paces Australia which brought a lot of people into the sport now, you were very successful, Terry, in sourcing tried horses with proven ability for your syndicate members, and you came up with two absolute superstars. You purchased uh, Choken, didn't you? For uh, He'd had a, a few runs before you got him? Uh, yes. Uh, we, we actually had an option to buy him after his third run. He was uh, owned and bred by Brian Hughes and Barry Purden, who... I knew reasonably well, but not overly well then, um, recommended him as a purchase. And uh, I sent the manager of the business over to New Zealand to have a look at him for his fourth run. And he ran fourth uh, in his fourth run, uh, mm. was uh, given not the best of rides by, uh, drives by Tony Hurley, of all people. Mm. Anyway, um, we uh, they thought that I would sort of reject the horse, but uh, we bought him, fortunately, and uh, and then the rest was history with Choken after that. He had a remarkable career. He won 34 races. He won $1.8 million, which by thoroughbred standards is <clears throat> not overly impressive, but it's a lot of money at the trots. He won two well, Auckland it- Cups, two Miracle Miles, a Victoria Cup, a New Zealand Cup. He was one of the greats of his generation. Uh, he certainly was. I think he won 15 Group 1 races and he was the first horse in Australasia to break uh, two minutes for the standing two miles, mm. uh, so two-minute uh, mile rate. Uh, so he, he had a lot of achievements and uh, he gave uh, myself and our owners in the horse a, a tremendous, uh, a tremendous time. Now, in 1991, he became the first three-year-old to ever contest the Miracle Mile. He choked down during that race and coming around the home turn, and it, uh, it, it's a memory that still haunts me to this day, he crashed from sheer exhaustion, which took a lot of gloss off the win by his stablemate, Christopher Vance. 
never forget it. And, uh, you know, you make some mistakes in life. And I've made a few, obviously. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes was um, not going with Barry and Roy's recommendation that we didn't come to that Miracle Mile. We decided to come across. At the time, Bob Knight had a share in the horse and he was keen for him to come across because the plan was for him to transfer to Bob after that race. And, uh, and of course, we brought him across and he just could not handle the pressure of Harold Park and what went with it. And uh, it was a disastrous night. And fortunately, um, he came out of the race well, but uh, one of those experiences you really don't need with a champion racehorse. He was already, I think, uh, horse of the year in New Zealand as a two-year-old and only, I think, the second horse ever to be horse of the year as a two-year-old. So it was, uh, it was a shocking night. It was two years before we saw him again in a Miracle Mile uh, and he won that one and then he butted up again in 1994 and won it again. What a constitution he had. Yes, well, the 1994 one, uh, the 1993 one was a walk in the park. It was probably one of the slowest miracle miles for the, ever, uh, to be honest. He got away with murder in the race and, and, and won it. But the 1994 race, uh, it actually uh, pulled up in the uh, New Zealand Cup. And uh, as a result, we didn't think we'd get an invitation. But they sent some guys across to have a look at him work. Uh, they all thought that he worked well and uh, and we got the invitation. Then he came across and and won brilliantly uh, in 94. So uh, 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 there's a great recovery from what was a, a very worrying Auckland Cup race. In the mid-90s... Uh, sorry, New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand Cup, yeah. New Zealand Cup, yeah. In the mid-1990s, you were alerted to the presence of a potential top liner at a little place called Bluff, way down at the southern tip of New Zealand's South Island, and you were one of a small group of people who travelled to Bluff to make an offer that Holmes DG's owner could not refuse? Well, I didn't actually go down there. Uh, Barry was handling it. Barry Purden was handling it. And he had a couple of major clients by this stage. We had a few horses with Barry, and, and so did uh, a guy who was there already a friend, but now has become a group friend, uh, John Hart in mm-hmm. New Zealand. And Barry had recommended the horse to pieces and he'd recommend it to John and Dave Sexton over there and uh, anyway we both arrived at the horse together and fortunately we knew each other well from uh, earlier days and um, so we decided to buy the horse together and uh, again it was a marriage made in heaven both in terms of the ownership of um, uh, Dave Sexton and John Hart and uh, and uh, the Pacers Australia team mm. and uh, and the Purden so we got another remarkable career out of a, a very brave little horse. Yeah, Holmes DG won four derbies, two Miracle Miles, an Auckland Cup, a Victoria Cup, a Chariots of Fire and a Truer Memorial, and he won almost two million, and that's 20 years ago, Terry. Yes, yeah, well, you know, to have four Miracle Cup winners in a matter of uh, eight years uh, was was remarkable for, for Pacers Australia. Um and, of course, uh, all our thanks went and still does go to Barry Purden and his team uh, because they, they, you know, they, they took relatively raw horses, both horses that had a couple of starts, and, uh, and made them into champions. Mm. You'd been having a little dabble in thoroughbred ownership, including a share in a dual Oaks winner, Send Me an Angel, trained by the late Colin Hayes. But in between Choken and Holmes DG... You had a fantastic journey 
as a half-owner of Doremus, winner of 3.5 million. How did you stumble upon Doremus? Well, it, it, it goes back to Colin Hayes encouraging me to uh, run the Paces Australia model into thoroughbreds, uh, which I did and immediately bought some horses with Colin. And then that led to basically having a dual code business during those 90s under Paces Australia's banner. And uh, Doremus came about as a result of uh, a, a friend in New Zealand who'd recommended him to me, uh, a journo over there and, uh, called Mike Dillon. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, uh, Doremus was owned by Jimmy Gibbs and his wife, Anne. And uh, after uh, some uh, interesting negotiations, we acquired him as a late three-year-old uh, skinny chestnut horse that mm-hmm. uh, I think cost 4000 as a yearling. And, uh, and of course, he moved across to Lee Friedman and the Friedmans did a magnificent job in bringing that horse along. Mm. Well, Terry, you're very familiar with his record, but for our listeners who may have forgotten, he ran in four Melbourne Cups. He won it in 1995. He got beaten an eyelash in 1997. He won a Caulfield Cup. He won a Queen Elizabeth in Sydney. And what about his Group 1 seconds? Second to (laughs) might and power in a Melbourne Cup. Second in another Caulfield Cup. Second in a Doombin Cup, a Sydney Cup and a Metropolitan. He was a shuffly moving old bloke at the trot. Uh, he was hard to look at. <laughs> in fact, he couldn't trot. That's right, he couldn't trot. Um, if if he, if he was exposed to the Werribee quarantine facility these days, I don't think he'd get a start because um, he was just one of those horses that uh, he had an, He had a funny when – when I bought him, I can remember looking at this galloping action and think that he went more like a kangaroo than he did a – thoroughbred mm. because he had a bouncing type of action uh and uh he wasn't a great walker um he used his body well uh but he did have um you know a, a very unusual action uh but uh yeah he uh, um i think at the time he won over after he won over a million dollars after he won his last race just by running second yeah and uh, and some when you look at the horses that he ran second behind, and I, the one that I re- vividly remember was the Sydney Cup in Tie the Knot, where Shane Dye sat on his back. I think we had to give Tie the Knot nine kilos, mm. and it was a magnificent ride by Shane Dye. And like you just knew all the way up the street, up the straight, that mm. Dye was going to get him on Tie the Knot. But Doremus was incredibly brave, even in that. But is is a great horse, and he lived out his days at Living Legends down here and only died about three years ago, so mm. lo- lovely animal. A quick look at your business life away from racing. You left school in year five, you went to night school and you attained a Bachelor of Business and Transport Economics degree. You founded a company called Henderson Consultants, which grew rapidly, and eventually you sold it to French Interests in 1996, and that gave you ammunition to expand your horse interests. Yes, well, I don't think my wife saw that as a reason for the sale of the business so I could buy more racehorses because we probably had plenty then. But um, I had a, 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 a very fortunate career in, in transport, and uh, these days they call it more logistics. And uh, it was at the right place at the right time as – Various uh, companies understood that by being more efficient 
in uh, running their transport fleets and uh, how to uh, look after their supply line a little better. Uh, we're in the right place at the right time. And Henderson Consultants uh, was, uh, was a remarkable business and grew to be quite large. And um, still many of the people that we acted for back then, uh, we still know very well. And many of them actually ended up racing horses with us. Uh, but uh, reality is uh, that did uh, um, we did okay out of the financial side of that arrangement, bluntly. You've held numerous board positions over the years and you've been chairman of several companies. In fact, you were still involved as recently as a year ago. Yeah, well, uh, a company that's been very close to my heart is a large bus company in Melbourne called Dyson's. And ironically enough, and this is where the link I mentioned earlier with Dusty Miller came in, uh, Dyson's, when I first started to work for them, I think they had about uh, 26 buses and they now have uh, around eight or 900 and uh, about mm-hmm. 1,500 employees. But one of the first businesses that uh, old um, Laurie Dyson bought after the Second World War was a bus bus business, ironically owned by Skipper Taylor, mm-hmm. uh, the same guy that owned Dusty Miller. Mm-hmm. Uh, complete coincidence. Uh, but it was uh, ironic that I found out when I joined Dyson's uh, uh, to do some work for them in a, as an early 20-year-old uh, mm. that uh, one of their acquisitions was from the same guy that actually got me involved in racing. And, uh, and of course, uh, Dyson's have grown to be a magnificent country, a company, a company with a beautiful culture, business culture, a family business, and uh, one that I'm still close to personally, even though my days of chairman are over. In the first instance, did Simon O'Donnell approach you with a proposal to join him in a bloodstock venture? Yes, yes, he. Uh, I'd known Simon for uh, years, uh, and uh, we weren't mates, but uh, we'd see each other at various functions, and obviously at the racetrack, and and uh, got on well. And he uh, he identified quite rightly at the time uh, that there was an opportunity to uh, sell mares back to America. There'd been a few sold out of New Zealand, but there are a lot of these high-priced stallions coming across from America, and they were standing in Australia uh, for, for, you know, a fifth of what they were standing for in uh, in America. The one that I remember vividly was Unbridled Song. Mm. So the plan Syme came up with was that we we should uh, buy some of these mares, um, race them as two or three-year-olds, and, and, you know, market them up to sell them back to America. Uh, and we went backwards and forwards to Kentucky and uh, California and uh, for a couple of years trying to do this. And to be frank, it was um, it just didn't work. Um, mm. the, the Yanks were very nice and we always thought we were coming back with some potential uh, opportunities, but it just did not uh, did not eventuate. So that was the genesis of us then combining Simon's O'Donnell Thoroughbred business with uh, my Paces Australia business and, um, and then uh, forming what came to be known as OTI. And uh, it was, a, frankly, a marriage made in many ways um, that you, you very, we're very blessed to have because uh, Simon left the business about five years ago to uh, get involved in, a, in an app. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's still a close mate of mine and we've done uh, bits and pieces in property since and will continue to do so, hopefully. And uh, But he, he just didn't have time to spend on, on the... Uh, uh, racing business uh, to the extent that was required at that stage, uh, given that he had this investment in this uh, this app, mm. and uh, and he left the business then. But uh, you know, without Simon's um, initial 
vision to do what we did at Paces, as OTI would never have existed. Mm. Well, you decided to concentrate on the syndication of overseas horses and now the OTI colours are almost as well known as any in the country. As I mentioned earlier, navy blue gold hoops, white sleeves. If you've got three runners in a race, you put a black cap on one and a red cap on another to give the race callers an even break. <laughs> well, we've, when you buy some of these European horses, you, one of the first things you worry about is, is uh, the Europeans. We, we recently bought a horse that uh, won the Italian Oaks, and its name is Ayantapui. Mm-hmm. And uh, don't ask me to spell it because we've owned it for six months and I still get it wrong. But when the, when this horse arrives in Australia in another month's time, <laughs> I uh, feel for poor old Matty Hill as he tries to call the name. But yeah. we end up with some terrible names for some of these European horses. Did you say she won the Italian Oaks? Yes, he won this year's Italian Oaks, yes. And mm-hmm. then uh, had a couple of starts in France and then we uh, decided to bring him out. He's a lovely four-year-old um, Night of Thunder. Uh, She's not a Thunder filly. Right. And who'll be training her, Terry? Archie Alexander. Ah, good. Mm. Well, we'd need three weeks to talk about all of the nice ones you've raced, but let's look at some of your personal favourites. Now, one of them retired just weeks ago after running fifth in the Kingston Town Classic in Perth. Lovable old Galo Chop, who won three Group 1s for you, a McKinnon, a Caulfield Stakes and a Ranvet, and he was placed in five other Group 1s. There was a tendon injury somewhere along the line, wasn't there? Yes, there was. There was actually two, mm. um, and uh, as one as a five-year-old and one as a seven-year-old, um, and um, he came back and won a Group 1 after the first one and still ran competitively after the second. We've got to pay homage to the enigmatic and charismatic Tom Melbourne who won four (laughs) races for you, an Albury Cup for the Freedmans. He won only one race for Chris Waller, that was the Carrington Stakes, but he did run 11 seconds, amongst them an Epsom and a Kennedy Mile. And you tell me, you've never known a horse with funnier habits. Oh, you know, you you talk about those two horses. Gallo's Shop was the, the epitome of the ideal horse to own um, you know, he took us to four countries, America, Dubai, Hong Kong, um, and uh, we started in France down in the south and ended up, you know, racing against uh, in the Shima Classic in, in Dubai. Mm. Perfect horse. Tom was a different kettle of fish. We bought him out of a night meeting at Dundalk in Ireland as a, uh, as a, a late three-year-old. Um and from the very word go, he was quirky. He he arrived over in Australia with uh, Friedman's, and Friedman said, I can't believe this horse. He piles his straw up in the middle of the box. Um, you know, he's never known a horse to do it. Mm. Uh, and right through his career, he'd have habits like on, on a particular day, he'd refuse to face out when they were in the tie-up stalls. He'd want to face the wall. <laughs> um, he he uh, he was a really unusual and quirky horse, uh, but he became you know he became that lovable horse that, that had an enormous cult following for all mm. the wrong reasons when he started to run second, mm. and yet uh, he was a horse you we just loved. And there was amongst the owner group there, which had actually included John Hart, who 
uh, Race Tomes DG with us. Um, we uh, we had a, a lovely uh, four or five views with Tom, and uh, and no one ever grizzled. Yeah, you know, Chris Waller would walk up to you after the races and shrug his shoulders after another second in a good one in a good race and say, well, "What am I supposed to do?" You know, so that was Tom. Attorney's doing a good job for his trainer Matthew Smith with wins in a Group Three, the Colin Stephen, and the recent Pakenham Cup. He's done very little racing, Terry. Only sixteen starts. Well, the European horses—it's rare that any of them have had more than 10 starts by the end of their three-year-old career. And it's probably why they do pretty well out here, particularly the stayers, because they haven't been pushed early. Um, an attorney was a, a classic example of that. Uh, I think when we bought him, he'd had two or three starts. We gave him another one in France. He came out here. He, he started off as if he was going to win everything and then you know, lost his way, had to acclimatise. Uh, Matt did a remarkably good job to get into... Um, acclimatised and then this preparation, this last preparation was most satisfactory in winning those two races you mentioned. Mm. Uh, so he's now poised really to build on that in the rest of his career. So he's just having, uh, he's, we've kept him in light work over this next month and uh, he'll get ready for races like, you know, the, the Ramvet and, uh, and uh, BMW and mm. uh, the Tancred and then go on to the Sydney Cup hopefully. Yeah. Grey Lyons, an honest old fella. He won a Group 3 at Randwick, a listed Lord Mayor's Cup and a listed Queensland Cup, and um, he seems to stick his head out and do his best every time. Very honest horse, and again, uh, a beautiful horse to deal with. Uh, he's getting uh, whiter as he gets older, um, and I've got a line-up from here to breakfast time for people that want him when he retires. But he uh, he's getting near the you know the the end of his career, and this may be his last prep. He may get a shot to run in that uh, race that gets you into the Magic Millions race for stayers. Yeah, uh, but I think uh, yeah, that, that's right. So I think you know, but he is getting near the end of his career. But he's he's given everyone a, a lot of a lot of enjoyment on what probably was a a reasonable career. Um, he was a We've, he, with a bit, bit of luck, he probably could have won another couple of good group races, uh, but uh, he's certainly been a very honest customer. Grey line, like attorney, is trained by Matthew Smith at Warwick Farm. Matt's a very diligent and a very meticulous trainer who seems to get on really well with these imported horses. Yeah, uh, we uh, we love Matt. Um, he's extremely good all-round trainer with uh, – uh, these, uh, well, the horses that we bring in. Uh, he's very good with the owners. He gives them a lot of time. Uh, he's a real thinker. He really tries to think out how best to get uh, a horse through the right sort of races to get him to the target in a preparation. Uh, he's a traveller. He's not scared to go uh, and race his horses in Melbourne or Brisbane or wherever they're going to be the most competitive. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're building a nice little um, portfolio with, with Matt at the moment and really I see him as a, a real force. Um, we know how good Chris is in Sydney and he's frankly head and shoulders amongst, above everybody in Australia. Uh, but it's great when you know guys like Matt are coming up and you can really see that in four or five years' time he's going to be up there with Chris in these big races and uh, winning his three or four group ones every year and maybe more. Uh, so we're, uh, we're happy to be part of that. The catalogue is out. 
for the 2021 English Classic Yearling Sale. In total, 803 yearlings have been catalogued, 620 in the main book, 183 in the highway session. The sale will run from February the 7th to February the 9th at Riverside and will be preceded by the running of the $2 million English Millennium at Randwick on the Saturday. 108 stallions will be represented at the classic sale, including 22 first season sires. 87% of the yearlings are Bob's eligible, while there are yearlings catalogued eligible for Vobus, QTIS, West Speed, and also the South Australian Breeders and Owners Incentive Scheme. Since 2018, Inglis Auctions have produced 53 Group 1 winners. In the last four years, the Classic Sale has produced the winners of a Melbourne Cup, a Golden Slipper, an Everest, a Blue Diamond, a Randwick Guineas, and a Victoria Derby. Grab your copy of a catalogue bursting with quality. The English Classic Sale 2021. Other trainers you're supporting in Sydney are Annabelle Neesham, young Will Friedman, Matthew Dunn at Mwillumbar, John O'Shea at Randwick, and, of course, Chris Waller. Uh, we made a conscious decision um, a couple of years ago to uh, expand our Sydney base. Um, I think, uh, whether you, you love him or not, uh, Peter Volandis has done a remarkable job for New South Wales racing. Uh, it's got a not only a new lease of life, but its uh, financial structure up there, I think, is, is second to none when it comes to how to organise the administration side of racing. It seems tight. Certainly the cost of putting on their racing is, is, is to me, very efficient compared with others. Uh, so uh, I'm, a, I'm a strong supporter of the way New South Wales racing has been call it, rejuvenated under uh, Volandi's leadership. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, it made a lot of sense for us to send more horses to Sydney. Um, you know, it, it, the... the the nature of the game is that we've got to uh, race horses where they're going to be most competitive in terms of what they can win and what prize money they can win. So um, I think we're up to about uh, 17 or 18 in Sydney now, and and that'll continue to grow where I'd, I'd say it'll be on parity with, with Melbourne and, and even Brisbane. Brisbane's a bit of a quiet achiever at the moment. It's, it's creeping ahead really well with its prize money and its administration structure. A lot of those issues that were plaguing the industry for four or five years, seem to be dissipating. Mm. So, um, you know, we see, we'll see horses, particularly with guys like uh, Matty Dunn based on the border up there, as well as having his Sydney stables now, uh, being ideally placed to, to train more horses for us. Mm. You loved Managar, who in 2012 reeled off a wonderful Group 1 treble for you, the Australian Cup, the Ranvet and the BMW and he also added a Group 3 Carline Cup. He ran second in a Queen Elizabeth too, didn't he, at Group 1? Peter Moody had him here. Yeah, well, he had him here uh, on the back of uh, Luca Kamani uh, having him after we bought him off the Aga Khan uh, a couple of years, and Luca gave him a couple of preparations out here uh, for the Melbourne Cup, and uh, we left him with Pete uh, after the second one. Um he hadn't raced under 2,500 metres until he arrived uh, with Peter Moody. Mm. And, um, you know, it, it just shows you that some of these Europeans, what you get 
when you buy them in Europe and what you think you've got. It's not necessarily what you end up with when you get them out here. And Manigau is a classic example of that. Uh, Pete thought he had more speed in his legs than we'd seen, obviously, in Europe. Mm. So he he trained him differently. Uh, he produced him in a 1,600-metre race and, and won it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then obviously went on to have that great uh, great autumn. Uh, so it uh, was a it was a great period and great credit to uh, to Peter for the way that he was able to look at this horse, change his training style, and then get the results at distances the horse had previously not been exposed to. He sharpened him up very much so, and and his method of doing that was if you if you mentioned it to a European, they'd look you know askance at you, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Pete's way of getting him to be competitive, um, which, you know, he was always happy to tell people, uh, was such that made the horse want to chase and certainly put a lot more speed into his legs than we thought he had. Mm. Quick Thinker is one of your New Zealand acquisitions. He was purchased as a weanling and later pinhooked. Yes, uh, we bought him at um, Easter, uh, English Easter, um, uh, the year after he'd been bought as a, uh, a, a weaning for, I think, $180,000, and I think we paid one hundred and ten when he was sold. So he wasn't particularly attractive uh, for the pers- person that bought him initially. Mm. Uh, and, and fun, really, we bought him um, as a thank you horse to Murray Baker. Uh, Murray had previously won the previous year, uh, won the uh, New Zealand derby with Vinda Dance, and I thought we'd try and buy another horse for him you know, as a as a young stayer, and uh, we didn't realise at the time we were buying another Derby winner, but we were lucky uh, lucky to get him. And uh, thanks to um, Hubie de Berg, who many people know well, and Phil Cataldo, who works for us in New Zealand, uh, we were able to acquire him. And uh, and Murray, uh, as he so often does, uh, produced them in the Sydney Autumn to do what he did. Yeah. You've had a long association with Murray Baker, an amazing trainer whose Group 1 record in this country is astonishing. I think he's won 22 or 23 Group 1 races in Australia. Uh, He uh, is a remarkable horseman. And uh, we go back a a long way. I've known Murray for years, but frankly, hadn't had horses trained by him for, for a long time. But I went over there in about 2004 six to the stable uh i'd heard that a horse had failed a bet for hong kong a horse called kibbutz mm-hmm. and uh and i was told that if i got over quickly um i should look at the horse because it was only a minor failure for hong kong and i might like it so i walked into the stable chatted to murray um had a lot of laughs which you always do interview in murray's companies one of the most iconic guys you'll ever meet and uh and so he he sold us this horse called kibbutz but he said, I've got to tell you, I've got a faster one here <laughs> that you're not going to see until Sydney. Mm. And, of course, uh, oh, the name's just escaped me, but we won the Victoria Derby with Kibbutz and, mm. right, and then he came out and won the, uh, Aust- uh, the, the Australasian Derby, you know, with his other horse. So mm-hmm. he, he knows his horse as well. Aloysia is another Group 1 winner for OTI. Her three wins included a 1,000 guineas with Luke Nolan up. Did Aaron Purcell train her for you? Uh, well, he did um, while he was training in lieu of Kieran Maher. Um, right. We bought the horse and placed her with Kieran, uh, but then Kieran got a holiday for six months for uh, that horse that uh, 
uh, was associated with uh, someone that shouldn't have been in racing, mm. and uh, and um, and so it was transferred across to Aaron Purcell, and uh, and Aaron uh, took it through that spring uh, where she had a a remarkable stretch, winning the the guineas, thousand guineas, and then going on to win the the Amy Vars. Mm. Uh, beautiful little filly, but unfortunately, she was one of those fillies that we could never get back. She she played up just before the Oaks, where she was on on favourite, and she never really recovered from that. And um, uh, we ended up um, selling her as a brood mirror eighteen months later. Mm. Brambles reeled off a lovely little treble in Queensland in two thousand and twelve. He won the Rough Habit Plate, the Grand Prix and the Group 1 Queensland Derby for Peter Moody and Brad Rewilla. Yes, and uh, and I, uh, I remember the horse arriving up at Simon's property in Kilmore very well. Um, Pete had a couple of horses up there. One was a Savabile, one was a Pentire, and uh, he hadn't been able to sell them. You know, those, those stayers are often very difficult for, for trainers to syndicate. So I'd said to Pete, send them up to Simon's, we'll work them up up at the farm and see whether they, um, they're they any good. And anyway, after a month or so, I, th- I decided that the, the Pentire was, was the better of the two. And by this stage, we decided, well, we might as well keep the two. Mm. <laughs> Fortunately, we did. Uh, and, of course, uh, from there, uh, Pete uh, basically brought along the Pentire that ended up being no good, uh, but the Savabile, which was Brambles. Mm. Uh, Pete took back. I think he ran third in his first race at Bendigo, and then he said, this horse is, is a bit better than we think. Mm. Took him along a very slow preparation till they got to that Brisbane Carnival, and and then we uh, we, we had a, another great career out of the horse. Again, he was a horse that did attend an injury uh, and came back um, two years later and was very competitive in open class racing. One of your great favourites was Bauer, who made his first trip to Australia in 2008 when he won the Geelong Cup for Damien Oliver and then he got beaten by a thumbnail in the Melbourne Cup won by Viewed. An agonising delay waiting for that number to go up. <laughs> it, was, it certainly was. When Doremus got beaten by a couple of centimetres, uh, I always thought that he'd lost. But uh, Simon and I and our wives uh, were watching with our other owners uh, in the stand when he uh, got when Bauer got beaten and we actually thought he'd won because his bum was in front of Vudes and that's usually a bit of an indication at Flemington that you've won mm. but uh, unfortunately <laughs> Bauer fitted between Vudes' uh, nose and uh, his backside so um, mm. he, uh, he just didn't get the prize but um, look uh, a, a remarkable little horse we always fall in love with smaller horses he was only 15 too um a little horse with an attitude. He hated travelling, um, hated the float, uh, but he uh, he was a really competitive racehorse once you got him onto the track. Bauer was trained by Luca Cumani at Newmarket in England, and he actually went back to Luca after that narrow defeat in the Melbourne Cup. Three years later, he was back again. He only had three runs, Terry. Uh, he didn't win and he was retired soon after that. Now, Mrs. Sarah Cumani, Francesca's mum, was instrumental in your buying Bauer in the first place. 
she certainly was. Um, I didn't know the Kamanis at that stage, and they were out here with Purple Moon. And uh, anyway, there were a couple of um, French-owned horses in the Kamani stable that I quite liked, and I'd heard they could be bought. So I approached Sarah when she was out here and said, uh, look, um, I'm interested in these. And she bluntly said, you don't want those. No, they're, not, they're no good for you. Uh, you. You should see if you can buy this little horse we've got called Bower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so this was the Cup Carnival. So Simon and I went back to the uh, broodmare sale at Newmarket in the December, just after the Cup, and we negotiated with uh, the co-owner at the time, and uh, a guy called Spencer. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and he, uh, uh, we decided to buy half the horse with them at that stage, and uh, and of course that started my relationship with the Kamadi clan, and and led to uh, probably Francesca coming out here with her media career, and more importantly these days, um, Matt starting his racing career out here. Mm. You're not certain of the total number of horses you've imported to Australia, but you estimated somewhere between two and three hundred. Now you leave a good number of them overseas. And then if they're good enough, you'll bring them to Australia at age four. Those that aren't good enough, Terry, do you sell them overseas? Yes. Yeah, we, mm. we do. Um, it, the model we use um, really came about when we started uh, to buy horses overseas. I'm going back to sort of hugs, dancer days. Uh, really, we started at uh, Lloyd probably followed about two years later and then over the next decade it became you know a part of the Australian acquisition framework as it were mm. uh, and it became increasingly harder to buy the better horses because the, they, they knew you were, you were we had competition so we then decided that I'd try and spend more time in Europe looking at horses when they were younger early three-year-olds particularly and if necessary leaving them there uh, for 12 months uh, for their three-year-old year and then bringing them out. And what that led to is just often buying half a horse. For example, with Galo's shop, we originally only bought half the horse mm. and uh, raced him for 12 months with his original breeder, uh, and then we bought the breeder out and then we brought him to Australia ultimately. Mm. Uh, so that, that model did a number of things. First, it got us involved in European racing with early three-year-olds. And secondly, it built up a great relationship with a number of the European trainers. So that in that in turn led to us being offered horses that otherwise would only be offered through agents. Mm. And we found that to be a tremendous benefit to the acquisition side of the business, that we, we have not only agents over there that we trust, that we have trainers over there that will look after us because we're not immediately taking their horses away from them. They're going mm. to be able to train them through the end of the three-year-old year. Mm. And that's that's been very beneficial. Mm. Oh, I'm sure it has. Trainers uh, you're using over there are Joseph O'Brien, who's had a fantastic start to his training career, Willie Mullins, John Murtard, Jesse Harrington, and a man for whom you have tremendous respect, Andre Fab, who's been champion French trainer 30 times. And what better barometer of his talents could there be more than eight wins in the Arc de Triomphe? Now, Terry, you tell me the man turned 75 just weeks ago. Yes, and there's no sign of stopping. 
Um, Andre, um, he is the general. Um, he runs a stable um, like clockwork. He can set your watch to when the horses go out. He knows his horses intimately. Um, his wife is a tremendous asset, Elizabeth. She she runs one of the barns. Andre's got two other barns, one uh, that's basically for owners like us, and then there's a, there's a, a Godolphin barn. He, he gets between 50 and 70 Godolphin year, uh, two-year-olds a year. Uh, so it's it's an amazing setup, and you know numbers in this industry speak all languages. And you look at Andre's statistics over the years, and uh, and then you you can't help but think, golly, this this guy does know what he's doing, and uh, and he's certainly not verbose. He's a, he's not a social character at all. Uh, he doesn't speak to the press um, at all in in France. He tends to a bit of an anglophile he, he actually mm. talks about cricket um and uh, but he is a remarkable man to deal with and uh, you feel really you you're never you're never unsure of where your horse is or what it's doing when the horse is in his barn mm. but he's he's not beyond uh, telling people that he doesn't need to train for them he's got that uh tommy smith type style of mm. <laughs> you know that he's the one in charge mm. You tell me he's still playing competitive polo. Now I, he was until about two or three years ago. Oh. I don't know whether he is now, but he still loves. He still follows it, and I think he still owns a polo team over there. Uh, he, and he still gets across. Well, he won't obviously this year, but gets across to Argentina and uh, follows the team that he had in Argentina as well. But it's not beyond uh, Andre, or it wasn't beyond Andre a few years ago to. Watch a Group Two race, and he not be there for the presentation because he was off to the polo where he was. He had mm. to play half an hour later. Yep. In Victoria, you have horses with Archie Alexander, Matt Cumani, Mitchell Friedman, Mar and Eustace, Mick Price, uh, and Mick Kent, of course. Nowadays, in a partnership, Matt Williams, Lindsay Smith, and Simon Wild. Yeah, and uh, the Busseton camp as well. Uh, Trent and Natalie, they do a great job. Mm-hmm. Uh, we 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 have a, um, a very uh, open attitude to trainers. Um, we don't um, we don't necessarily think that we have to be with any one trainer. We try and select a trainer that we think is going to suit the horse. Um, often these days, we might buy a horse with a trainer, but uh, but generally, we just try and place the horse where we think that horse is going to be most suited. Given that with the Europeans, we know they'll already have certain physiological characteristics. They might have feet that are challenging or they might be, you know, if we want to keep them colts, they might need a, a different sort of trainer. So we, we try and look at the trainer that suits the horse and then place them accordingly. Susan, your wife of 51 years, isn't quite as passionate about racing as you are but she doesn't mind a day out during the major carnivals. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I think um, I, be, I often wonder about these couples where the wife is just as passionate as the husband, and you see it obviously with trainers and their wives because the wives often have to be that passionate. But uh, fortunately, um, Sue uh, uh, allows me to live out uh, this passion uh, uh, in the way that I want to, and then does enjoy the the uh, going to the races with me, and uh, and obviously, especially the bigger meetings, and and then obviously these days, uh, travelling with me to the bigger races overseas. You and Susan are the proud parents of Fiona, Ben, and Kate, 
who between them have presented you with a total of nine grandkids. Yep, uh, absolutely. That's uh, you, you. You rate you rate your um, achievements in life, and one of them is to have a happy family with happy kids and grandkids, and uh, and that's number one. Ben's involved in horse ownership, so the genes have shown up in the next generation. Yeah, I'd say he's been dragged into it more than involved. <laughs> he's in a position of being able to be involved from a financial point of view, and he's got a few mates that are involved, and, uh, and, uh, and, and some of the horses he's involved in are nothing at all to do with OTI, which doesn't particularly please me. But anyway, they've been successful, so you can't argue. Uh, but the reality is he's, uh, he has got an interest in a number and he's had a pretty good spring with uh, Eduardo in Sydney and True Self in Melbourne. Mm, I'm sure you'll swing him around to OTI before too many more <laughs> moons pass. Uh, we, have, we have got him involved. Terry Henderson, I'm almost embarrassed to say that we've never met before, but we've done the next best thing today and uh, more than... Uh, caught up uh, by having a decent old chat on the podcast and it's been my pleasure. Lovely to have you on board. Likewise, Johnny, and I'm sure I've heard your voice a lot more than you've heard mine over the last 30 years and it's been a pleasure to listen to it. Thank you very much, Terry, and uh, this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. Supernova Sound.